Master Windu. I take it General Grievous has been destroyed then. I must say you're here sooner than expected. In the name of the Galactic Senate of the Republic, you're under arrest, Chancellor. Are you threatening me, Master Jedi? The Senate will decide your fate. I am the Senate. You've never heard of the Millennium Fall? Should I have? It's a ship that made the capital less than 12 parsons. Hey everyone, and welcome to Kessel Run Weekly. My name is Danny, and this week I've got something special for you. So, for those of you who follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you got to follow along with me during Fanboy Expo in Knoxville, Tennessee this past weekend. I got to meet a lot of cool Star Wars celebrities, uh, one of which, the Senate himself, Ian McDermott. And so I also got the opportunity to participate, in a very small way, in a panel that he had put on during the con, and I actually have that audio for you guys. And so I wanted you to be able to enjoy that panel as well. Uh, For any of you who may have been following us on Instagram, I did do this live, so I apologize for any kind of laughter or any kind of noise in the background. Uh, We tried to clean it up as much as possible, but I hope you enjoy this next clip. This is Ian McDermott's panel from Fanboy Expo, Knoxville, Tennessee. To Ian McDermott! <laughs> I had some Wookiee noises early on. I don't mind them, but if there are any Ewoks in the building, clear the hall. <laughs> I didn't notice any Ewoks stand up. I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> so, guys, this is a Q&A. You will provide the cues, questions, and the answers will probably mostly be coming up from here. Sure. Probably. Yeah. If, if he deigns necessary to entertain you. All right. So, I would like to see hands, or if you can, even like form a line for questions. I've got a feeling we're going to have a lot. That's so, good. Don't be shy. Other people, don't be shy. He's already he's already broken the ice for you. He's the first guy that's going to do it. So, from one sorcerer of a kind to another. Is it true that you never actually... Uh, was on this set at the same time as David Prowse, the actor who Norm is most credited with playing Darth Vader. All the uh, scenes were done by his stunt double. It's not quite true, no. Um, he was around uh, very close by me on most occasions, but I didn't always know it was him. Um, and he couldn't take his mask off really to prove it was him. But I did a lot of scenes with Dave and a lot of scenes with the stunt double, who was a brilliant guy who worked with Errol Flynn all of those years ago. But on the very first scene before I'd met Dave, this is Turn of the Jedi all those years ago, as I came down the steps, you probably remember, to review the troops, um, meet him. I had no idea what I was walking into. Uh, and I was led to the top of the staircase because I had these yellow contact lenses in, I couldn't see a thing. 
And the, uh, the first AD was a charming man called Dave Tomlin. Went, uh, Tomlin. He went, oh, hi, Ian. Uh, now, you know the part you're playing, don't you? I said, well, yes, it's the emperor of the universe. He said, oh, well, great, that's fine, because he don't always know. <laughs> um, so there he was at the top of the stairs, waiting to go down. He said, there'll be a blast of smoke, a blast of smoke. And then there's a huge staircase, you go down, you'll see Vader, and you say your lines. So that's exactly what happened. But when the blast of smoke happened, I really couldn't see a thing. Uh, and I knew they were only rehearsing, but all the cameras were on, and so on. So I took tentative steps all the way down those steps to the bottom. And of course, I forgot that I probably wouldn't be able to hear Dave's voice, and I knew anyway it was going to be James L. Jones in the end. So I had to assume that David said his lines, and I came in with mine, having assumed in my head it was James L. Jones. But having not fallen flat on my face, I felt the first scene was victorious. <laughs> and then afterwards, he took his helmet off, and I saw who he was, and uh, we got to know each other uh, over the movie. But it's disconcerting, really, to be acting with someone who you can't really hear, and you know it doesn't matter anyway, because it's going to be somebody else's voice that you respond to eventually. <laughs> but it was very good training, and that stalled for you. So being blinded by contacts and smoke and not really being able to hear your coast. That's right. And, uh, and George was at the bottom. I'd met him, but only briefly uh, when he saw me for the part. And he went, hi, Ian, great, go again. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, I learned was a common refrain of George's, you know. Uh, in fact, he had about three directions. He had uh, go again and fantastic. <laughs> and uh, go again, too. <laughs> That's a little exaggerated. Uh, but he liked to think that he cast the person he wanted to cast, and uh, it was up to the actor to come up with the goods. Um, although I did come up with a voice that I think he wasn't expecting to hear. But in the end, I guess, quite liked it, because he let me keep it. Uh, hi, my name is Ryan, and I just want to say that you're the, one of the biggest influences in my life growing up and you've even spread your influence from the universe into my little boy. He's five years old, and he absolutely loves the movies. God. And it's rather terrifying. Cool. <laughs> Honestly, it kind of is, because hearing a five-year-old kid talk like that is <laughs> nightmare fuel for sure. But I just wanted to give you a huge thank you, saying that you're just a huge part of my life, and I'm so glad that you actually got to grace the screen of the movie. And now the question is, what is by far your most memorable moment on set through the entire time? Okay. Well, as you can imagine, there are quite a few. But since you've asked for the most memorable, it would have to be the scene in episode three, Revenge of the Jedi, when I finally nailed it with uh, the seduction of Anakin to the dark side. Uh, I like that because it was a longer scene than usual. I got time to do a bit of work on him in his ear. Um, and it was also set in a theater. And originally in an opera house, apparently we were watching a squid ballet. <laughs> that wasn't too clear at the time. Uh, but all of the scenes really, as you know, before that were in offices. And his office kept getting bigger, which was great. And they weren't CGI size, they were real size. So every time I turned up at the set, I'd get a bigger office. And then 
George said, I think the office is getting a bit boring. Let's go to the theatre, because I know you like the theatre. At that time, I was running one, too. And uh, that was an inspired idea, because I could, as it were, pretend to watch the show while pouring poison into his left ear, I think it was at the time. <laughs> and I also said, well, could people say, is there anything at all good about the emperor? And I'd say, there's one thing, he likes to go to the theatre. <laughs> Hey, um, so when it comes to like playing Palpatine in the prequels and all that, basically you're kind of doing like two different characters at the same time. You're trying to be like the, the, the Dark Lord, so yes, and you're also trying to, you know, be kindly old Chancellor, trying to, you know, make the peace and the war and all that stuff. But then there's also points where you have to like slide between them, you know, like the, the, the infamous, you know, the whole uh, do it thing. And then there's like the whole, um, the seductions and... You know, just like trying to like slip between those. Like, how was that just like in, in your head and then trying to do like the acting and direction and all that? Well, it was interesting to do because um, when he first appears as apparently straightforward, if I can use that word about a politician, uh, <laughs> relatively straightforward politician, um, he was just sort of Mr. Ordinary, Mr. Nice Guy. And that was very much what George wanted. Same time I knew at one point in the movies he would turn into Mr. Not Very Nice Guy. Uh, but George said, joking about his notes, the best note he did give me uh, was he think, well, we're on your face, you know, Ian's face as Palpatine. I had, you know, a hairpiece and not much makeup. He said, think of your face as Sidious's, or the Emperor's, mask. So that was a very useful thing. So I had to think of this thing as a tight thing that fitted over something terrible underneath. It didn't mean I had to do anything in particular, but it was a very, very useful thought. And if you look at those movies now and again, you'll just see there's something not quite right about what's going on. But of course, we didn't want to give it away. But then when we got to um, the final film, um, episode three, um, clearly that's when he was going to transition. And uh, so we sort of let little bits of it leak out before he turned into the monster. Hi. And um, and two of them, well, more famous moments, were, uh, first of all, the beginning of the movie, you know, when he's captured. Uh, and he's really dying for Anakin to get Christopher Lee out of the way. And uh, we did the scene a few times, and uh, I think I said, do it, really quite, uh, no I didn't, I said do it, in my own words. And then I thought, well it'd be good, he's getting a little impatient, if I could maybe slip a bit of the emperor in. And then we did many takes, and I, just for a joke, I went, do it! And, and uh, George said, that's the one. <laughs> so that was, um, that was leak number one, I think. Uh, and then I suppose number two is a bit later in the picture, uh, when Mace comes in, and uh, he kind of loses it, and um, comes up with that other phrase that people seem to like, I am the Senate. Not quite into that, but you know, getting there. And, uh, and then of course when uh, the mask, my face, comes off and it turns into the the great prosthetic mask. Um, 
he sort of goes bananas with the voice. I won't do it now because I'd probably lose it and uh, maybe a lot of you would have to leave the building. <laughs> the phrase unlimited power, you know, we did that many times. And I would say, George, that was a bit much the last time. You won't use that. He said, no, no, it's great. Do more, do more. <laughs> so, so he was talking to me like that. He was doing this sort of, you know, frenetic thing. The only problem was uh, it was a busy day in the studio. And there was a lot of dust, as there always is. I mean, it's clean, but they can't clean everything. And four wind machines were being driven towards me at the same time. <laughs> so as I was trying to do that, lots of dust was going down my throat. And the more I did it, the more dust. And the more dust, the, the better it sounded from George's point of view. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's really gravelly. I like that. You know, keep it gravelly. Like what, George? <laughs> um, and then I exploded into the, into the full man, and, and that voice came back after all those years. And, um, but I suppose you know initially how I found it. I mean, I, I, um, when I saw the face, it was so horrible. You know, I went to sleep, and four hours later I woke up after the makeup and screamed, you know, by looking at that mirror. And I thought it looks like a terrible, ugly, slimy toad. <laughs> and what do they sound like? Well, they sort <coughs> somewhere there. And uh, I was an admirer of a great Japanese actor. And Japanese actors are particularly great, stage actor. And uh, it was actually um, a very young actor impersonating a very strong woman called Medea from the play Medea. And he seemed to produce his voice from somewhere down in his stomach. <laughs> Usually our best sounds come from the chest, which is there. That's the easiest thing to do. But I thought if I could get further down, it might be even more toad-like and menacing. <laughs> so uh, I practiced at home. And the, please don't try it at home. Uh, what's, uh, what it does sound like is if you're about to vomit. It sort of goes there, and then you start speaking with any luck. And I got used to it over the years. And when I first did it on the set, everyone looked at me as if I was really ill, you know, and John Zandons was standing by and so on. <laughs> I said, no, I think that's how you should sound. And, and eventually, George and uh, everyone else agreed too. So that's, that's how it happened. And it was uh, nice to get back to him in, in, in episode three. Thank you, thank you, and great Lucas. <laughs> thank you. Yes, here's a little higher than the Emperor's voice. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Ambrose. I've been enjoying Star Wars since I could understand the concept of language. <laughs> and um, I was wondering if there's anything about the Emperor that you wanted to change or felt dissatisfied with? Well, you see, George is very clever. And he got one, when I heard I was playing the Emperor of the Universe, you know, you imagine grand robes and, well, <laughs> a bit like what Snoke was wearing. No, later on. <laughs> Another bit of it. Uh, just a simple black robe with a hood that could cover the face or as much of it, you know, as George wanted to show at any one time. Uh, and that was it. And a, and a really sort of great makeup. And I, I think, in a sense, that's the gift of the part. I mean, if he did furbelows and endless cloaks and all the rest of it. Um, it would have been sort of about the office a little more than the man. The thing about having absolute power, I imagine, is you don't care about how you dress. And he was 120, 
He just wanted to be comfortable. <laughs> so it was like getting up in the morning, putting on a robe, you know, washing your face, not too closely, because it might come off. <laughs> and, and there's a stick that came at one point, which I, I had, but after a while, I think once the electric lightning got flowing, I thought, no, he doesn't need that stick. Um, so that was a, a, a sort of act of kind of brilliance. But if you analyze most of the costumes throughout uh, the series and the voices and so on, uh, although George just pretends, you know, I got, I got that idea for that guy's name on the bottom of an ashtray. And it, it may be true, but I think there's, there's more thought than he will ever admit that goes into them all. And uh, so you have that great cushion as a part. And as I say, and he says, you know, he believes he's done the casting and the rest is up to you. So from that point of view, it's very relaxing, even though you're in this extraordinary thing called Star Wars. You know, I was, I'm a kid from Dundee. I said, what am I doing here in the biggest franchise of all time? Um, so and I still sort of feel that a little bit. And then uh, when people come up to me at conventions uh, sometimes, but, but often just in the street, sometimes say, hey, yeah, well, you were very kind to say that I had a big influence on your life, and yeah, which is always worrying, you know, what kind of influence. <laughs> but my favorite one is one said, hey, you were on my duvet. I said, he said, you know, yeah, I've been underneath you for most of my childhood. <laughs> I said, well, you won't mind if I don't record that. <laughs> Thank you. I was just wondering, what was it like coming back after about 15 years to play the younger version of the same character? Yeah, it's all nuts when you think about it, really. I mean, I, I shouldn't have been playing the part at all, because they had cast someone who was closer to the age of Palpatine in uh, Return of the Jedi, which is, George would never be specific, they said over a hundred anyway. And they found this actor, I think he was in his 80s. Unfortunately, for one reason or another, he couldn't be insured. I think he found the contact lenses, which in those days were made of glass, quite hard to tolerate. So one lunchtime, uh, I suddenly found myself in front of George Lucas and Richard Markman, because the casting director, who I, I knew very well, had uh, had seen me in a few things, not least in a studio theatre in London playing a version of Howard Hughes when he was very old and very decrepit in a terrific play worth reviving, I think, by Sam Shepard, the late Sam Shepard called Seduced. And I guess she'd said something along the lines of, I know this guy, he's in his late 30s, but he can be very convincing. Oh, and I didn't have any makeup then. I had a very good week and lots of fingernails, and that was a good thing. Uh, so once again, George, uh, Mary Salway, her name was, trusted her judgment implicitly, got me in, and we had a brief chat, and before I knew where I was, I was the emperor. So at the age of 38, I was playing this guy who was 120. <laughs> and then when George decided to do the prequels, which, you know, he only decided late on, I think he'd always seen in his head the stories of gigantic Shakespearean arc. But then when Vega became the most popular character that he did, he thought, well, it'd be a good idea to go back and tell his story. I was then the right age for the Chancellor, which was in my 50s. And uh, there was no reason he should cast me. But uh, when I went in that day um, to meet him again for the movie, 
or just to say hello. I wasn't quite sure at which. Um, and I went in, and he was wearing the same shirt as he wore. And uh, he said, can I get you some of your drink? I said, well, one of these. I'll have a water. Thank you very much. And, uh, and then he said, uh, I won't do the voice again, sorry. He said, uh, do you know anyone who wants to play an emperor? I said, well, funny, you should say that. He said, okay, you can give the water back. So that was his way of telling me I'd still got the part. And then he started to tell me a little bit of the story of the peoples. Uh, but he told me about two people. He told me about this guy who was, uh, yeah, the nice politician that we've referred to, and then somebody else who was a real villain of the piece. And I thought, oh, no, I want to play the real villain of the piece. And it was only on the first day of shooting when I thought, when I realized it wasn't a mistake in the shooting order, and my name was opposite somebody called Darth Sidious, that I realized what was going on. Nobody else did. He didn't tell anybody else. And then as the film progressed and the holograms appeared, you know, you have to be pretty dumb not to work it out. <laughs> but, uh, but all of the other actors uh, didn't know. Ray, of course, knew, um, because I had scenes with him uh, in my hood. Uh, but I remember at the premiere, uh, Liam Neeson coming up to me and saying, My God, Ian, it was you, you bastard. <laughs> Keeping secrets, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. I'm slightly straight off the point, but I hope that answers your question. Yes, I would. Oh, wait, hang on. I knew for the Emperor first. Oh, okay. I love it when people know that place. <laughs> so, I have no idea when I first learned what Star Wars was. It seems everybody is born with that knowledge. But at some point, Star Wars was not a thing. And I heard that it was not popular before it was made. What were your first thoughts about it upon seeing the script? I, well, I, I, it's certainly, you're quite right. I mean, when it, it seemed like a good idea to the studio, they, they commissioned it, it's 20th Century Fox and so on. George had a great supporter of Alan Ladd, who ran the studio, and of course his great friend Steven Spielberg. But when it was shown in the rough cut form, uh, the studio didn't like it. In fact, they sort of wanted to shelve it, I think. Uh, but Steven argued for it passionately. And I, I believe that George wasn't given his full contract. Uh, but he wisely said something like, uh, well, uh, why don't you just give me the franchise? And that, you know, say that now, everybody knows what that means in terms of billions. Uh, then they thought, how sweet, he wants to print a couple of t-shirts for his kids. <laughs> so he got the franchise, and the rest is history, and he got his supreme independence as a filmmaker, a Star Wars filmmaker. Uh, as a result. But I had only seen, when I got the part, I'd only seen the first film, which I thought was great. I mean, it was all the things he said it was. It was like this early Saturday morning movies that I used to go to when I was a kid, you know, with uh, cliff edge, you know, endings. So then you go back next week and find that your hero wasn't going to die after all, he'd be miraculously rescued. And uh, it was a great, exciting adventure movie for kids of all ages. And uh, then to find myself in it, as I said earlier, was a complete astonishment. 
And it's interesting about the script, because you know what Harrison said about it, I won't repeat that, you know, it, what the implication was it wasn't the best piece of writing he ever come across, and that William Shakespeare's memory was still intact. Um, but my scenes in Jedi, I thought there's a lot to be done with those very simple lines, uh, which over the years, to everyone's astonishment, certainly mine, have become sort of, you know, phrases that people like to repeat and are very attached to. Um, they're very simple and they get to the heart of things. Once when we were watching John, the great John Williams, conduct the London Symphony Orchestra when they were adding the soundtrack to, I think it was Attack of the Clones I was watching. And uh, so the screen goes silent and John's doing his magic. And at the moment of silence, I said to George, this is just like a silent movie. He said it is a silent movie, in a sense. But the, the action, the excitement that the acting contained and the music contained ought to be able to, to be transmitted to the audience rather before the words. Um, and, you know, he'd be the first to admit he wasn't the greatest screenwriter in the world. And indeed on the sequels, a number of other people were approached about writing them. But the problem is George's ideas are so strong and if they don't match what he has in his head about how the film will look and how the technology will work, it won't work. So in the end he decided, not because he's, you know, he's obsessed with writing, uh, that he would write all three movies because he thought it would be simpler uh, and cause less fuss in, in the long run. But all sorts of distinguished names were mentioned uh, about writing these films, and it would be very interesting if, they, if they'd be brought on board. The same was true about director. He also felt that, you know, as the concept was in his head, he would always be saying to the director, well, I'm sorry, I don't need to do that because this is going to happen later, and that would make for a good relationship, which is why he ended up doing it. But what's so good now, now that they belong to Disney, is that the whole of that world I mean, you could say, you know, Teddy George is no longer involved as directly as he was before. I think a lot of people feel that. But it's now opened up to all these other wonderful artists, directors, writers, new actors, and so on. And so the whole series lives all over again, refreshed by new people, most of whom, like you, grew up with the movies, are thrilled by them, and want to continue the tradition, but by reinventing it. Um, uh, I was wondering, what is your favorite uh, Palpatine moment that you that you get to perform out of all of the six movies that you were involved in? Yes, um, hard to say. But again, there are there are so many, just so many. Um, I think I, I probably go back to my favorite scene, the one I mentioned earlier uh, at the opera. Um, when Anakin is just almost there. Um, and the Emperor is really inviting him to betray everything he stood for up to now. And the phrase is still quite simple, it comes out. Now from a Jedi. <laughs> and in that he recognizes that Anakin wants power, you know, and if he wants power he has to become a Sith. Simple as that. But that was that was an example of a very good line, you see. That just did its work. Thank you.
Can you please tell us the tragedy of your I think I don't know. I don't think the Palpatine was too upset when he died. Let's put it that way. Hi, I just wanted to say I'm I'm a huge fan of the prequels. I I wanted to know how does it feel to be like one of the best elements of the prequel trilogy. Well, it's kind of you to say that. I think there are a lot of good elements oh, no, in the prequel challenge. You know, let's charge our pigs for a start. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I feel that Jar Jar in people's hearts is making you come back, if, if not in actual movie terms. You know, it always turns, doesn't it? You end up hating somebody later on, you know, you, you fall in love with them. Or does it work the other way around? Anyway. <laughs> Uh, there was, well, again, I had the opportunity to really, I didn't know it at the time, of course, to develop an arc of a part. You know, it was like uh, a sort of Shakespearean, you know, transition. Uh, so that was, that was a big gift. But there are lots of highlights. In the, some of the action sequences are absolutely extraordinary. And some of the characters, you know, take your, take your breath away. And that continues to be the case in all of the films that we've seen so far in the new series, whether they're the anthology side, you know, solo, etc., or whether they're the continuation of the arc. Right up, I guess, until the final phase of the arc, which is episode nine. Uh, it, nobody's specific, but I sort of feel that those nine films will be part of a, I don't know what a nine elegy is, uh, <laughs> but that, and then something else will happen with new people, new directors, and so on. Uh, so that's interesting. And um, the thing is, you can just, what wasn't true when we all started was, you know, you told a simple story and then you went on and told another story. Nowadays, you know, people are alive to the advantages of the side story, the sidebar story, of following different characters at different stages in their lives. And what's interesting about that is how they mesh in with what's originally happened. And there are a lot of very cautious, careful people making sure that things aren't contradicted in the movies. You've probably got a few examples of where you think they are. But it's, uh, it's a very intricate story pattern. And now, of course, everybody's doing it. Hello. I was Hi. just wanting to know that uh, who was your favorite person to work with on set? Um, there are a lot of favorite books. Of course, I had a great time with Mark. That was the, the initial, because uh, he's a lot of fun, apart from being a good actor. And uh, when I was doing my, my electric lightning, sorry I didn't do it for you today, I left the charger off. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sometimes. And uh, he, he's a great fan, uh, was then, still is, of, of English comics. And it's a very well-known English comic who was a magician who always got things wrong. Uh, he was called Tony Cooper. <coughs> and uh, he would do something like that. And uh, he would go, just like that, just like that. And it would never work. So when I was on the other side of the camera, I hoped, uh, terrifying electric lightning, which of course was added later, you know, standing there doing just like Tony Cooper. And, uh, and he would go on the other side, just like that, just like that, just like that. <laughs> being enormously helpful. Uh, <laughs> Not all the time. So that was a, that was a good and uh, striking moment and fun with Mark. But I also had a, um, a great time working with Hayden. He and I had a particular rapport. And uh, 
we didn't because that's the way things are. We didn't have too much time to rehearse, but uh, we, we got on well, trusted each other, and were good in each other's eyes. Uh, and that's that's always exciting. I've known Ewan for years. That was that was great. Natalie's delightful, you know. And Christopher Lee was a hero of mine. So that was a big moment when he joined the picture. Uh, because he, uh, some of you are kind enough to say that my, my evil bag of, bag of bones transformed your childhood. Well, his Dracula certainly transformed mine. One of the great performances of all time, I think, is Christopher's Dracula. So, so that was thrilling. Um, and in movies anyway, you know, you turn up and suddenly you find you might be facing somebody you worship for ages. You say hello, you do the lines, and then you're doing a film with them. So that's that's almost exciting. Thank you, and long with Ed Park. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. McGowan, it's good to be talking to you. Um, I've grown up with Star Wars, and it's just a thrill to be here. So thanks for coming. But uh, my question for you is, while you were filming um, the whole saga, was there a particularly annoying or dreadful scene to film that was just... <laughs> I don't know about annoying, but there was, a, there was a difficult day. It was a day of, of the, uh, the opera scene, the ballet scene, um, because I had to go through a lot. I had to do a bit of the fight, uh, my bit, um, with Mace, um, and then I had to, to do the transition into the monster. And then we were due to do the scene in the opera, and it was a Friday when everybody's a little bit, you know, especially in Australia, looking forward to a nice sunny hot weekend. It was also the first AD's birthday, so there was a lot of background activity going on, you know, champagne glasses being clinked in readiness for being served. Uh, and a certain guild robot was in charge of that. Um, <laughs> There was this thing we now recognize as the video village, which is a lot of people sitting behind screens watching what you were doing on the pretty big uh, screens. And friends of the family, cars, all sorts of people. So it doesn't make for maximum concentration. And it was half past four, and we were due to finish at half past five. And I assumed George was going to say, we'll pick up on Monday with the scene. He said, no, I want to do it now. So don't worry, you know, if, if it's not great, we'll do it again on Monday. Um, and Hayden and I didn't even have a chance to rehearse the lines, which is very unusual. Um, and he said, we'll do it all on you and we'll do it on Hayden on Monday. But, but that means the cameras would be on me, you'd be on the other side of the cameras. Two cameras on the floor, roughly where you are sitting in the front row, to make you look as hideous as possible. Usually the other way around the movies, you know, how can we make him look worse? <laughs> and um, but these were manned by two great guys uh, who gave me an enormous amount of confidence and as you know I had a lot to say and he said don't worry if you need a line ask for it, you'll get it don't stop uh, and amazingly enough through 20 takes I, I didn't need to get another line but my main preoccupation was the voice because uh, as I told you I had all that studio dust and so on but apart from being tired after a big week um, and to this day, it still sounds to me odd, more breathy than I would have chosen to do, because remember, it's not the emperor yet, it's just, it just should sound a bit like I'm sounding now. So we did it, and George said, that was great, I, I can use that, and on Monday we'll turn around and be on Hayden. Um, I said, I'm a bit worried about the voice. He said, no, we'll listen to that, 
and we really like it. I said, oh, but it's very throaty. He said, ah, yes, but it sounds as if he's in transition. <laughs> so amazingly enough, my, my sort of croakiness and three tons of studio dust contributed to the transition of the Chancellor into the Empire. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. Hello, sir. I'd like Hi. to thank you for coming once again. And uh, I was wondering, working on so many movies and them also creating more movies, do you think that the franchise as a whole has become too cluttered, or do you think people still feel the same excitement as they uh, used to? I think, well, obviously when it started all over again, uh, after Disney took charge of the operation, uh, well, the great thing, of course, was the operation wasn't that different from what it was before, and as far as Kathleen Kennedy, who's a remarkable woman and great friend of George, um, took over Lucasfilm. So that meant that certain things, values, if you like, would be maintained, which of course is what Disney wanted. You know, they didn't want us to come in and mess it all up. They wanted to come in and you know, make the next episodes of the saga even more exciting, even better, and play to even larger audiences. Uh, so all of that was good. But when I heard they were going to issue one film a year, I thought that's maybe a little other ambitious. Uh, but so far it doesn't seem to be so, although a few people think, I thought Solo was terrific, he's a wonderful actor, Alden Aaron Wright, there are many things in that film I really liked. Um, maybe, you know, releasing that, as it were, after six months, rather than a whole year, uh, was, was not so well advised. Um, but as long as they continue to be exciting, the scripts are good, and introduces to new characters or younger versions of older characters, I, I think they'll last. I mean, it was the first franchise, and uh, it has a special place in everybody's hearts. Some people will like some films more than others, but goodness me, I mean, look at look at the prequels, or, or even look at... Um, the first three, you know, The Empire Strikes Back is most people's favorite for the first three. Uh, a lot of them didn't like The Turn of the Jedi, you know. It was those Ewoks, I think, if I can get personal from them. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always been a shift about, you know, who likes what, whom, and who prefers which character. I think that also keeps it alive. Uh, if we like all of them equally all of the time, then it would be a very bland experience. But I'm... The great thing about good stories and good movies is to find out what happens next. And as long as that principle is still maintained in an exciting way, it can go on forever. Thank you, sir. Okay. So, Mr. McNeary, uh, are there any last words that you'd like to give us here in Knoxville? Uh, well, I said do it, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Oh, well, thank you very much. I just, uh, people, people are very kind, people always say nice things. I was in Las Vegas once. Oh, were you? Yes, I was. And um, in, the, in Venice, you know, the, the Venetian, etc. The, the Las Vegas version of Venice, there's a guy in a gondola hunting. Hunting a gondola, or whatever you do, he was doing it. And he went, you are the emperor, we love you. And I went, I have failed totally. <laughs> I have been beseeching your hate for over a large number of years. Yes, 
but we love to hate you. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to say go on loving to hate me, but unfortunately I'm dead. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Kessel Run Weekly. I hope you guys enjoyed the panel as much as I did. It was truly awesome to be a part of and to be able to sit in on and also to meet uh, Mr. McDermott himself. Uh, He was just an awesome guy, uh, very nice, better than I could have ever dreamed. Uh, I'm still in awe over the whole thing, and I'm sure you guys are going to hear me talk about it more and more in the weeks to come. Uh, Stay tuned for our next week's episode Uh, which will be Solo and the Phantom Menace, uh, where we talk about how Solo impacts the Phantom Menace and the saga overall. If you've been following that series, it's been a lot of fun re-watching the saga uh, with Kristen, so definitely keep an eye out on that, because we have something special coming up after that week as well. So please, guys, make sure to uh, subscribe if you like the show, and leave a uh, review for us on iTunes. It definitely helps us get out there and everything, and tell your friends. You guys have been amazing and been showing us a lot of love lately, and we really, really appreciate you, uh, and we love you back. (laughs) So I appreciate everything you guys do. Um, Just be sure, again, to subscribe um, if you're wherever you're getting this. And also follow us on social media at Castle Run Weekly on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and our website, CastleRunWeekly.com. And again, thank you guys for listening to another episode. And until next time, may the Force be with you always.